Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's time to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty with Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Good morning, we're Dirt Radio, and uh, this is Friends of the Earth, foe.org.au. And this edition of Dirt Radio, let me tell you, I think it should be entitled, Whatever Happened To? Let me give you the backstory. I was reading the financial section of the Age newspaper about a week ago, and the headline jumped out at me. Whitehaven Coal digs big net profit after tax of $405 million. Well, I'm taken aback. Really, can this be true? Dirt Radio's done a lot of coverage of the Whitehaven Coal Mine in northern New South Wales a couple of years back. Malls Creek, the Lurd Forest Blockade, Frontline Action on Coal campaign. I guess you could say the campaign was lost because the mine ultimately went ahead But does the headline mean that the coal company has really won big time? I wanted to find out more, so I contacted Tim Buckley. Tim works at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, and he's been following the development of the Whitehaven Coal Mine for several years. He's on the phone from Sydney. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, And I wanted to start by uh, maybe asking a bit of a naive question. I thought, and I suppose this is putting on my fairly optimistic environment hat, I thought coal was heading towards being a stranded asset. How come they're making so much money and and they're saying that it's it's record-breaking profits? Well, it's a very good question. The... Answer is is not easy, but in the short term, Whitehaven is absolutely in a sweet spot. They're having record high production, and thanks to a dramatic and ongoing tightening of energy policy in China, the coal price, both the thermal coal price and the coking coal price, coking used for steel, thermal used for power generation, both have doubled in the last 12 months. But it's worth looking at the long term. In the last five, six years, Whitehaven has lost money more times than not. And its share price, although it's rallied dramatically on the back of a record profit, it is still down 50% on where it was six, seven years ago. Uh, But nonetheless, Whitehaven is a well-run company. It is uh, financially robust. It is delivering record production. And as I said, thanks to the Chinese, the coal price has strengthened dramatically. So in the near term, profits are going very, very robustly for Whitehaven. Basically, what you're saying, I suppose, just to reiterate, is that given their lack of profitability over the last few years, the profit that they're making at this point looks very dramatic, but maybe in the long term, not so. Well, ultimately, Whitehaven is a strong company. It's got a a focus management team. um, And I've always said I think Whitehaven will be one of the last coal companies standing globally um, because to say that they've got 
strong management is a rarity in the coal industry. I mean, you don't have to look at the U.S. coal industry. Almost every major listed company in the coal sector in America went into bankruptcy last year. And uh, on the back of that dramatic move, so Peabody, for example, went from an $18 billion market capitalization to zero mm-hmm. in the space of five years. So the value destruction in the coal sector globally has been extreme. There is a short-term reprieve, but ultimately I'd go back to the core reason why Whitehaven just reported a record result, and that is that the Chinese government is absolutely clear it is going to transform its energy markets systematically, progressively, and with one clear objective, and that is to transform to a low-emissions energy profile of the future. And if anything, Whitehaven is getting a near-term um kick thanks to the Chinese government forcing the coal price globally to double in literally 12 months because what China didn't want to do is follow the US industry into receivership. China has 6 million coal miners and all of its companies are extremely financially leveraged. So the last thing China wanted to do was tip up the 6 million workers onto the scrap heap too early. So it deliberately pushed the coal price up in order to restore near-term profitability of the coal mining sector as a clear part of transforming away from coal in the long term. Hmm. That's very, very interesting, Tim. Very interesting. The other thing, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you as a, a kind of a bit, you're probably aware of this. I'm, I'm fairly uh, naive in, in, in terms of all these um, technical things and, and probably fairly financially illiterate in terms of talking about coal prices and so on. But my understanding is that there are different types of coal, and, and one of the things that's making Whitehaven profitable is the fact that it's using or it's mining um, coal that can be used for making metals, metallurgical coal. Is, it, is, that, is that correct? That's correct. So there are two types, or primarily two types of coal or end uses for coal. There is coking coal or metallurgical coal for steel production, and there is thermal coal for use in power generation. Now, 90% of the world's coal is used for power generation and only 10% of the world's coal is used for coking coal or for steel production. Uh, Whitehaven has a large exposure to coking coal and that is certainly not a product that is in structural decline. It is the thermal coal sector that, in my view, is structurally challenged because it's the power generation sector globally that is going through a technology-driven transformation. And maybe just to to highlight that, the power sector means the electricity sector. You can generate electricity from nuclear, from coal, from gas, and increasingly from wind, solar, hydro. So in China, in literally just the last two months, China installed 24,000 megawatts of solar in just two months. Now, 24,000 megawatts is about a half to a third of the Australian electricity market in aggregate. Mm. So China installed half the Australian electricity market in solar in just two months. Mm. So when I talk about an inevitable, clear policy framework that China is putting forward, there is no way China is moving away from that policy direction. They are moving to a low emissions profile of the future. They are transforming their energy market. It's driven by technology. 
the cost of that technology is getting cheaper with every month, with every year, and that is a headwind that the coal industry, particularly the thermal coal industry, has to face up to. If they don't, they'll just end up as dinosaurs, as stranded Mm. assets. Mm. And just uh, finally, maybe we just need to relate this all to the Adani mine. And uh, I know there's been lots of thinking, I suppose, in the financial sector, but elsewhere as policymakers as well. What are the implications in relation to that mine going ahead? Well, it's, it's a bizarre situation where Adani has invested so much political capital and economic capital into a a proposed project that they've possibly gone too far for them to be willing to pull out. But at the end of the day, they don't have the financial capacity to complete the mine without support of global financial institutions. And those global financial institutions are quickly running in the opposite direction, saying they don't want anything to do with new low-quality thermal coal mines because they see that the sector is facing this enormous headwind. Now, you only have to look at the events in India in the last couple of months. The cost of solar in India in 2017 has dropped 30% year-to-date, and new solar projects are cheaper than existing thermal power generation in India. So the Indian government is now 100% aligned with the Chinese government. They are transforming their energy market. They see solar and wind as the lowest cost source of new electricity generation and so they're rapidly transforming their economy as is China and again you come back to why would anyone logically build the Carmichael coal mine to Mm. supply low quality thermal coal to India when the Indian government's telling Mm. you solar is the cheap option Mm. so the only way this mine can actually get up and running is if the Australian government, in my view, is stupid enough to offer a billion-dollar uh, subsidy mm. to buy to to effectively pay for them to get the mine up and running. Mm-hmm. Tim, it's been really interesting talking to you, and I want to I want to thanks thank you so much. And also, look, I'm just thinking about all the things that you've said. I'm I'm going to put it on the pl- in the plus column. <laughs> for thank you for for, uh, for us dirt radio people and friends of the earth as well. Well, it's worth. Bearing in mind, solar is now the low-cost source of new electricity generation. The transformation is inevitable. There is hope at the end of this. We've just got to stop investing in stranded assets. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning, Tim, and all the best to you. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Tim Buckley. He's the Director of Energy Finance Studies, Australasia, at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. And we'll put up uh, the details of their website on our website and also a couple of other things to let you know about, well, what's been happening at um, Whitehaven Coal and um, also what's been happening in relation to the transition to new sources of energy. We're Dirt Radio back after this. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page, a 3CR supporter. 
United Struggle Project presents a preview of The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre coming at you. Showcasing artists from the project, from the West Papua Black Orchid String Band, Black Sisters, Lady Lash, Combat Wombat, Race Rage, Soma, Vocal Boogie, Viv and Robbie, and a load of other amazing talent and yummy West Papuan food. $5 suggested donation, no one turned away. At the factory in Richmond on the 2nd of September, 6pm. Hey all you mob, get on down to the factory and be a part of the change. Dirt Radio, that's us, Friends of the Earth. I'm calling the show this week, Whatever Happened To? So let's turn our attention to Al Gore. As most of you know, Al Gore was majorly involved in a documentary film on climate change called An Inconvenient Truth. It was a huge success, seen by millions, and the film even won an Academy Award in 2006. Now he's back on center stage with another climate feature-length doco called An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. And again, it's expected that millions will see it, but... The question is, to what end? Inconvenient truth, but what about inconvenient action? Kim Borg is a research officer at Behaviour Works Australia, which is part of the Sustainable Development Institute at Monash University. And she's been thinking about the gap between seeing and doing in relation to what she calls the big issue documentary. Hello, Kim. Hello. Well, let, you better get, get us started by giving us a few names of some of these documentaries that you call the big issue documentaries. What are they? What's their What's their titles, and what were they about? Okay, so I just want to point out to start with, uh, there's sort of a difference between what we see as our traditional documentary, which is really about educating and increasing knowledge, versus what I'm calling these big issue advocacy documentaries, which are really trying to change our behavior. They, they have an agenda and they're trying to achieve change. So some of the examples uh, that I talk about are things like Supersize Me, which is focused on fast food consumption, um, The Cove, which is looking at protecting threatened wildlife, um, and Forks Over Knives, which is uh, talking about nutrition again and trying to encourage people to adopt a whole food plant-based diet. Now, yeah. Inconvenient Truth is another example of this, which again, we're trying to, or they were trying to encourage people to reduce their carbon footprint. And uh, some of these documentaries, as you're giving the names, they have been on SBS. They've been around a bit. Uh, you know, I've seen them, actually seen them on television. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so these... Sorry, sorry. go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so these, the, one of the uh, strengths of these films is their ability to stretch far and wide. Right. And your argument is that these kinds of documentaries do have some success in getting people to change the way they see an issue and then do something about their behavior, that is to change their behavior. But the success, your argument basically, is the success is fairly short-lived. Yeah, so it's... It's very encouraging when we look at these once-off studies that uh, ask people to view the film and then ask them about their knowledge, their attitude, their behavioural intention and even their behaviours straight after viewing a film where a lot of people are really engaged and they're encouraged to do something straight afterwards. 
But then when we've looked at some of the rare follow-up studies, it seems like this behaviour is really a once-off or it sort of fades over time if the film is the only source of change. So if people see the film and decide, I'm going to do something differently, they might do something in the short term, but then it fades out unless something else is happening in the background to really push for a long-term behaviour change. They did some some work on the Gore film, The Inconvenient Truth, and uh, they did some follow-up studies. Tell us what happened with that. So uh, there's two studies that I talk about specifically um, in the article. So one of them is where they, they got a bunch of people, they sat them down, they asked them to watch the film, complete a survey to talk about uh, their level of knowledge, their willingness to change. And as I said before, immediately after watching the film, people reported an increase in knowledge, an increase in environmental concern, and an increase in their willingness to act. But then when they resurveyed these people one month later, their commitment levels had basically dropped back to pre-film, uh, the pre-film experience. Mm. Uh, in another example, they took a novel approach. So instead of asking people what they're going to do, which can actually be a little bit different from what people actually do, uh, they, they looked at the purchase of carbon offsets in suburbs near film uh, near cinemas that were showing the film. Mm. And they noticed an mm. increase in the purchase of carbon offsets, uh, I think two months after the film came out, mm. which was great. Again, it looks like people are taking some sort of action afterwards. But then when they looked at the data one year later when their carbon offsets were due for renewal, we didn't see that same blip, that same uh, 50% increase that we saw the year before. So it looks like people film-induced purchasing behaviour was really a once-off and wasn't a genuine long-term behaviour change. Now, you, <clears throat> there is a film that you uh, looked at called Blackfish, which I hadn't heard of, and it's it was a big issue documentary, and it was more successful. What, tell us about that. So Blackfish is one of my favourite examples because the filmmaker has actually said that she never intended to tell people what to do or how to feel in response to the film. It didn't have that specific what we call call to action. Just tell but us what the film, the re- black, sorry, just the Blackfish. Oh, sorry, what, yeah, about yeah. Blackfish. Yeah, so just, Blackfish, uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, so Blackfish. Was, um, who is the Blackfish? Blackfish is actually uh, a colloquial name for orcas or killer whales. And this film focuses on the life of Tilikum, which is a, a famous uh, sea world orca. Mm. Uh, and it, it sort of follows his life and his role in the death of a trainer, Dawn Bradshaw. And it really focuses on whether whether it's right or the, really the life that these orcas experience when they're living their whole time in captivity. It shows sort of a comparison to orcas behaving in the wild versus the way orcas behave in captivity. And it really it draws on your heartstrings. You really feel for these animals by watching it. Mm. And 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 this was successful in getting people. The result of it, as as uh, you've written, is uh, pe- people stopped going to SeaWorld to, and and they they yeah. eventually stopped having orcas. Yeah. So and and this is where I kind of draw back to. Sorry, my first point about the fact that it didn't have a specific call to action, but. When watching the film, so I, I personally have seen this one and I did get to the end of it going, wow, we we should not be putting these intelligent, emotional animals in captivity 
Um, and you, you do have a bit of a, a less positive feeling towards SeaWorld. So if you were... Uh, so this takes place in um, California, mm-hmm. SeaWorld, I think it is, or mm-hmm. San Diego, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, and if you're living in that area and you watch this film, you would not want to go and be associated with SeaWorld afterwards. So I, I do want to point out that um, we can't directly attribute the film to what we see, but we can't argue what we see mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. we did see a consistent drop in visitors and revenue that were going to SeaWorld. Um, SeaWorld have since discontinued their orca breeding program, which was an issue raised as quite questionable in the film that, you know, we have these animals that uh, Mm. are actually uh, injuring people and then you are breeding them to create more orcas. Um, And then recently, I think it was just this year, they discontinued the orca show itself, which was another questionable Mm-hmm. Uh, practice on their behalf. So interesting. Uh, look, the, when I was reading your work on this, and we'll put, by the way, we'll we'll put your article up on our website so that people can have a look in, at what you've written. But something that okay. occurred to me while I, while I was reading about, but it was climate change and and even food in some ways is 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 a little bit abstract. When you've got a when you've got an orca, when you've got you can sort of anthropomorphize. Uh, an animal in a way that you can't with climate change. And I'm just wondering mm-hmm. if that might have had some some way of, I mean, the documentary filmmakers could do that so that the, the engagement, as you said, is much more, uh, you know, there is a personal engagement there, which you can't do with more abstract things. I'm, I'm wondering if you could mm. comment on that. Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail on the head right there with that observation. So, one of the things that we know is very successful um, outside of the documentary space but looking more at um, social marketing or behaviour change marketing is making an emotional and a personal connection with the feature person. So it's in, in the case of Blackfish, as you say, it worked really well because there was this one central animal or even the species that people were able to connect with and feel emotionally invested in. Emotion is Mm. a very powerful tool in this media space. And as you say, it's kind of hard to do this in the areas of climate change and even even health and nutrition because we don't have someone to connect it to. Mm. Now, Mm. I think in terms of uh, an inconvenient truth, so the original one back in 2006, Al Gore tried to take on that role and I think he was partly successful in that. So we saw him, we connected with him, he was he was funny, he was engaging and he really got us thinking about climate change. Um, in the second film, so an inconvenient sequel, we're following Al Gore again but this time it feels like the focus of the film is really too much on mm-hmm. the person and mm-hmm. not enough mm-hmm. on the issue. So mm-hmm. I, I walked out of that film feeling a lot of sympathy for Al Gore in the struggles that he's facing, mm. but I didn't feel like it was then up to me to go and do something different. Mm. Very interesting. Very interesting. I, I just want to finally, because we are running out of our time, but one of the things that you've said is that advocacy documentaries, as you've called them, should be coupled with other behavior change techniques to increase the chances of success. Just very briefly tell us what you mean by that. Okay, so I'll very quickly sum up. I received an article this week that illustrates this perfectly, which I can send to you if you would like to put up on uh, on the website. Um, but it it literally does this. So it 
uh, sat people down to watch a documentary, but then it sent one group group off with nothing, which is what we would traditionally see when you watch a documentary. You watch it, you walk away, and that's it. But with the other groups, it uh, the researchers gave them either a Facebook page that they that was associated with the film. They gave them uh, reminders and like an action plan for how they could change their behaviour in response to, I think it was uh, the marine environment, so more marine-friendly mm. behaviours. Uh, and another group they gave an action sheet that they could pin to their fridge. And they found that with those groups that they gave some sort of post-viewing material, their behaviour was sustained. Mm. It decreased a little bit um, after, the, you know, immediately watching, everything went up quite a lot. And 10 weeks later... Some of them decreased a little bit, some of them stayed nice and high, but the control group who just walked away, they decreased massively. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I'm just thinking as you're talking, maybe this, we should be doing something like this with Dirt Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, everything yeah. everything works. Totally. <laughs> well, look, Kim, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today, and uh, I wish you all the best with your research as well. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Talking there with Kim Borg, she's a research officer at Behaviour Works Australia, which is part of the Sustainable Development Institute at Monash University. And we will put those links up on our Dirt Radio Facebook page, uh, well, the Facebook page and our website as well. And she's Kim's just given us another reference, and we'll put that up as well. That's it for us. We're out of here. We're back next week, and we'll be talking to you then. I'm John Langer.